I think there's some weird correlation between people we have on this show and a background in .NET. I know, that's unfortunate. I mean, um, interesting, <laughs> isn't it? Hey, I represent that comment. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 41 of the iFreak Show. This week on our panel, we have Pete Hodgson. Good morning from the Golden City. Andrew Madsen. Hi from Los Angeles. James Uber. You're not from Los Angeles. I, I'm in Los Angeles today. That's crazy. What for? Uh, vacation. Uh, I'm Charles Maxwood from DevChat.tv, and this week we have a special guest, and that's Azam Sharp. Yeah, hello from Houston. Uh, since you haven't been on the show before, do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. Uh, so my name is Mohammad Azam. I go by Azam. And I'm mainly a .NET developer by day and by early mornings, uh, like 4 a.m. or 5 a.m. and late night or on the weekends, I do iOS development. I'm a Microsoft MVP from 2007 to 2012 and the creator of the High on Coding website, as well as the Gridview guy in early days. I've been doing iOS since 2010, so it's been close to three years now. And uh, I also maintain a... Azam Sharp channel, YouTube channel, in which I post iOS development videos, which has over 6,000 subscribers. I've spoken at like basically 360i Dev and Houston Tech Fest and Houston iPhone user group. And uh, that's where my real passion is. And I've developed at least eight to 10 different apps where one of them was featured by Apple on the App Store. Oh, wow. Cool. So we kind of brought you on today to talk about that. So how how do you get featured by Apple? How do you be awesome? <laughs> I mean, there are uh, different ways of getting featured by Apple. I think the the simple answer would be to just make an awesome app. Uh, and pretty much everyone knows that. Knows that. I mean, if you make an awesome app, you will get featured. The other, of course, the most di- more difficult answer will be that you have to do something that Apple will also benefit from. So if Apple is coming out with a new SDK or like Game Center when it came out or uh, multi-peer networking in iOS 7. So if you utilize those uh, frameworks, then you can also get featured by by Apple. My app that was featured by Apple is called Vegetable Tree, and it's a vegetable gardening app. And uh, when I pushed it out in November, there were not many sales because not anyone is doing any gardening at that point. But later in March and spring time frame, it really picked up lots of customer reviews. And uh, eventually, I think in March, April time frame, it was featured for, for at least two months uh, in the let your garden grow, grow category. Oh, nice. Yeah. Did you see like a, a and I'm guessing you saw a noticeable increase in sales during that period? Yeah, I, there was there was an increase, but uh, since it was inside the category, inside the category, like I think it was inside lifestyle, and then inside lifestyle, there's another category: let your garden grow. And also, my app is a little bit on the I would say a little bit on the expensive side. It's three dollars and ninety nine cents, three ninety nine, and also the niche is very narrowed down to vegetable gardening. So I did see, of course, I did see an increase, but it was not like uh, of a bigger magnitude, I guess. Oh, that's surprising. I would have thought that it would be this kind of huge, huge spike. But I guess, yeah, like you're saying, if you're featured inside of a a niche, then you're not, it's different from being like on the front page of the New York Times or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) 
I'm assuming you have other uh, apps that have been successful in one way or another. Yes, I have uh, six uh, or eight or nine apps on the App Store, and six of them are actually games that I started developing uh, in 2010. I started with games. Uh, the first game was ABC Pop, and it was kind of a challenge for me. Just bought the Mac in 2010, no idea about the Mac, uh, and using the Mac for the first time, using Objective-C for the first time, and, and Cocos 2D for the first time. I just gave myself a challenge to do an app in seven days. And I came up with ABC Pop. All the images, all the drawings and artwork is done by my wife. Uh, and it was simply just a challenge to learn something in seven days. And uh, by the end of seven days, it was available. It was basically pushed out to the App Store for review. It did reasonably okay. I think in a span of uh, three, four months, it accumulated the price of a MacBook Pro that I bought in 2010. So it was a decent app for seven days of work. After that, I did continue working on some games like Mathematician, which was a completely unique game. It was featured on different websites like Math4 as one of the unique games of addition and subtraction or uh, educational games. That didn't really do that well in the App Store, but it was okay. It was bought mainly by the educational discounts by some schools, which uh, which Apple doesn't tell you that which school has purchased your app. After that, I work on Math Speeder. This was uh, kind of a disappointing experience for me for Math Speeder app. It took me like a month to develop that app, and it really didn't do uh, well at all. Um, the last game I built was Kinder Pop, which is kind of like a ABC Pop, but for iPad and with much better graphics that I purchased. It also didn't really do that well as I expected. Um, I think the sales were maybe 500 to $1,000, but that's pretty much it. And after that, I realized that I need to get out of the game market, not because I'm not doing well in the game market, but because I have no passion for developing games. I don't play games. I don't appreciate any games. So uh, it was kind of uh, hard to stay in that category. Sounds like a takeaway from that is that you should only spend seven days writing an app. <laughs> I think, that, yeah, I mean, I think the takeaway would also be that if you want to accomplish something, you have to set a deadline to it. If you don't set a deadline, then you will never accomplish that anything. I mean, you will simply be have a Mac and you have expense of a Mac and all these things, but you will never accumulate that expense if you don't set up a deadline. Even if that deadline is like doing smaller tasks and not like completing the whole app in seven days. Uh, and the other thing I learned during this uh, creating six games is that you should only try to do what you're passionate about. And my passion clearly is not really in games because in order to create great, great games, you have to play games. You have to have uh, Nintendo V or Xbox or PlayStation 3, and you should be playing games pretty much every day on 30 minutes or one hour to appreciate those games. But uh, the last game I played in my life was uh, Half-Life 2 and Quake 3, and I didn't play any games after that. So, yeah. You're dating yourself. Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah. I'm pretty much in the same boat. So, so I'm, I'm a little bit curious. How much of the work is building the app versus marketing the app? I think building the app, the implementation, like the writing, the code itself never really seems, for me, it never seems to be the, like, the problem or the first priority. And I know if Ben was over here, he would be like, uh, 
you know, yelling at me that code is important. Of course, code is important, but uh, I always see code as secondary. And the design, what you see on the screen, the interface or the feel of the app, that that is number one. And same with the marketing. I mean, if you can create a great app, but if you're not marketing the app, then your app really doesn't exist. So for marketing, I did a couple of things. And I basically, I marketed my vegetable tree app. And what I did is I, first of all, I gave away the promo codes on Twitter. So if you retweet or something, I'll give you a promo code. So you don't have to spend $3.99 to buy the app. And those promo codes are pretty much gone like in like less than 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. I contacted different websites that do write for vegetable stuff like vegetable gardening. I contacted different blogs and I advertised on those blogs to which which were very highly trafficked blogs. So there were two blogs that I was paying maybe $50 a month and I paid for like two, three months to advertise my logo and all, all the stuff, the link. And then, of course, whenever you tweet about updates or whenever you tweet about the new things that are coming in Vegetable Tree, then you have to find the correct hashtag to tag those things. And the hashtag that I found was the Vegetable Chat hashtag, and uh, it was run by uh, Bren, a lady. uh, And I gave her the promo code for free. I mean, the promo code is free, but I gave her the promo code, and she wrote a really long, really nice review of the app on her website, which gets very high traffic. So these are the techniques that I use for basically marketing the app. I didn't really use AdWords or Google AdWords or anything like that, but like basically relying on the blogs, relying on the promo codes, Twitter, social networking, and all that stuff. Yeah, that makes sense. So is there anything you can do in the App Store itself in order to get the word out or to get, you know, promotion or whatever? I mean, um, in the inside the App Store, I don't think you can do much. I mean, you can display, I mean, but those are like advertisement points of view. But you can, whenever, one thing that I learned is that you have to provide updates. And updates is a free kind of like a marketing tool that is built into the app store or you it's dependent on you that how much updates you provide because one thing i learned is that once you provide an update there are many different websites that are watching the app store like the uh you know different websites which list the apps that okay these prices have up i mean these prices have dropped or there's a good deal coming or these are new updates for this uh, particular app and those websites are watching pretty much all the good or popular apps that are on the App Store. And whenever you provide an update, it basically climbs up the rank on those websites. So that's kind of like a free promotion that you can do. And of course, updates, if you don't provide updates, then your app really doesn't exist anymore. So that's that was kind of like the App Store-related thing that I did. Uh, what do you think about the changes in iOS 7 that make updates automatic? It seems like now there's a lot less, just updates are less visible in general. People don't know when, when their app is updated. They don't get to read release notes. Do you think that changes the equation at all? Well, that's actually a very good deal that if iOS 7 is doing that, that they are providing the updates. I'm not sure if the other websites get notified. I mean, they are, they are tracking the app store when the new version is pushed in. So the, those website will track you that they, those updates are coming. Uh, for the user itself, yes, if you provide like minor updates, most probably they're not going to notice. My update schedule, one of the mistakes that I did is uh, my update schedule was kind of really fast update process. 
I was providing at least two updates a month. And after a while, I stopped providing the updates. And the big update that I provided was, I think, in November or October, which was the complete iOS 7 update that I did. So when you're making an update schedule, just make sure that if you're pushing small changes, maybe like small feature set, maybe you can provide one update a month. If you're providing larger changes, you can wait a month and a half or two months and then provide an update. But don't be super aggressive to provide those updates. The other thing I've always wondered about is the balance between kind of getting a bump in interest because you've released an update to the app versus losing the, the like the the reviews. Like if you have, because um, every time you get an update, then then the, like the reviews are for that version of the app, right? So if you yes. uh, if you have a lot of positive reviews for a version and then you release a new version and some someone randomly decides that that you stink and they want to read you a negative review, then or give you a negative review, then then that's like the only review for that version of the app is negative. Yes, and that is actually the flaw. I would say that's a flaw in the App Store that the by default, the all versions section or all reviews section should be clicked instead of the this version section or the current version reviews. And I've seen some people who left a review that, okay, I'm not going to buy uh, these kind of apps with no reviews. And of course, it has at least like what 27, 28, 30 reviews, but they didn't notice that because it's, it's on a separate tab. Um, so that's one of the things that Apple needs to, you know, take into action that once you go on the app store, you can sort it. I mean, it should be automatically sorted by the latest review, but it also should be the control that all reviews or all versions should be selected instead of the current version so that the user can have a much better idea and they don't have to click the all versions to see those reviews. I guess maybe their motivation is they want, if someone releases a buggy, a buggy version that crashes, then they, they want people to know not to download it. But I think that's maybe that's a pretty negative, uh, <laughs> kind of pessimistic uh, attitude towards the App Store. I, I guess I, I have another question related to that is um, there's this trend, it seems like, for apps that nag you to review. So, you know, like they'll pop up a little thing like, hey, if you like the app, maybe you could leave a review for us in the App Store. I hate those. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I hate them. I hate them too. And I've always thought, I had this kind of assumption that they w- wouldn't have the effects that you'd, that you'd want. But then I saw, and I'm trying to remember where I saw this so that I can link to it in the show notes, but I saw a blog recently from someone who did an experiment where they had the nagging stuff in uh, and then they took it out for a release. And the um, amount of positive comments they had before were, was very, very high. And then um, without the nagging, they just didn't really get that many reviews at all. And the reviews that they did get were skewed more uh, towards the negative. So that kind of makes me think, although they're annoying from an end user point of view, um, mm. from a marketing point of view, they, they might be worthwhile, even if you're irritating your users somewhat. Yeah, that's true. I mean, in my own app, uh, the vegetable tree, I don't have any kind of those features. Now, the problem is that that's kind of like in a gray area because they have to repeatedly ask you to get the review and actually that works. And that's why most of them, even Flipboard app, which is a quite famous app, uh, does that. Uh, I always click cancel, but it's nothing wrong with really asking for the review, but there's the problem with how you ask the person for the review. And the only solution or one of the solutions is, first of all, is you can move the, those things like asking for a review in like a settings screen. 
or some sort of a other screen instead of like popping it up. Even if you do pop up, there should be another option saying that never ever ask me to review it again later. But of course, when they add that option, most of the people are going to click that and then, you know, they will never review the app. So it's kind of like in the, I would say in the gray area, some people would say if your app is great, then you don't have to worry about it because people will review it. I don't really agree with that because I mean, Flipboard is an app that I use every day, but I would never go on the, you know, never go over there on the app store and review it. I just don't have that time to just go and, uh, you know, to review it. So it's uh, it's still in a gray area. Well, I, I don't have that in my app. Uh, I have a different thing in my app. So I have a contact us button or a tab. And when you click on it, you can write me an email. And mainly, I added that functionality so that customers, whoever buy the vegetable tree app, they can communicate with me, they can talk to me, and they can talk to me about the new features that they want to see on the app. I saw someone was, uh, I, I think they were joking, but someone mentioned the other day that they saw an app where uh, there were two buttons, like, do you like the app? Or, um, you know, is there a problem? And the do you like the app would take them to the review so they could give a positive review. And the, the I don't like the app kind of I've got a problem would take them to email feedback, which if you're generous is because the app developer wants to help you fix the problem. But if you're, uh, you know, if you're paranoid, it's so that you, they can just bump their, their reviews or skew their reviews. Well, I think, I think people do that for both reasons. It certainly yeah. does help keep reviews positive, but it's true that people will post a one-star review when they really need to contact support. And a review, you you have no, you can't contact them just based on a review. So I yeah. think that's really frustrating. Yeah, I agree. I, I find it I find it really, really frustrating when someone leaves a negative review and it's like, I would love to help you. If you would just get in touch with me, I would love to help you out. Because <laughs> you're yeah. just doing one stupid thing wrong. One star, only supports iOS 7. <laughs> oh, one star. Where's the Android version of this application? Oh, there you go. Yeah. Oh, Lord. <laughs> I think all of these review things, uh, the main problem with me and I think with, with other people who are not really reviewing even the great apps is that just taking out of the app, like when they click that, when they display that pop-up that you want to review, if you say yes, it will actually take you out to from the app to the app store page of the app and then you can write the review. Uh, I think this can be, this issue can be minimalized by just providing some sort of a review framework, which you can plug into your application. And then in that way, you just don't have to go out of the way. Just take the user out of the application to, to review it. Just review it inside your own app. Yeah, that would be neat. I mean, I think just like a really, really straightforward one to five stars. And, you know, obviously you can have the option to go and give details and a detailed review, but allowing just that signal of uh, one star to five stars would hope would be. I would as a as a user as a you know as a consumer of applications. I would love to have more kind of information as to what people like and don't like. Yeah. So I've got another question around. Um, so you, you kind of were talking earlier about different applications you you'd made, and some of them have done really remarkably better than others, and it doesn't seem to be correlated with the amount of effort you put into them necessarily. Do you have like some some kind of takeaway rule of thumbs of of what's going to make something successful and what's not, or is it just a case of just trying something out and seeing what seeing what sticks? 
I think the first thing that was very important to me as, as a developer and as a person who likes to do vegetable gardening is to have passion towards what I'm doing. I think passion is extremely important. And I know it sounds kind of weird because people are making games and people are making other stuff. But if you're not passionate about what you're building and if you're not going to use it yourself, then you cannot really assume that other people, other you know, other people are going to use it. So that's the first thing. And I, and I continuously said that I have absolutely no passion for games. Actually, I, I, I told you that I downloaded or I played Half-Life 2. That was the last game. After that, a couple of years ago, I think one year ago, I downloaded Call of Duty 4 from Mac App Store and I played for like five minutes and then just got, just got bored. It just didn't do it for me. So you have to do something that you're really passionate about trying to solve a problem. But that doesn't mean that you cannot really step into the niche that is already heavily populated, just like to-do list. You have to experiment. You have to take the shot uh, for or you have to take the chance to make those happen. And this is a common thing, a common kind of like a disease in the mobile community, which I uh, term as, I mark it as the ABD syndrome, which has already been done syndrome, that if you have a great idea, let's say a to-do list, and you go on the app store and you say, oh my God, this is like 200 to-do lists out there, so I cannot be unique among them. And then they completely discard that idea. I think you are pretty much killing your imagination, killing your ideas for nothing. And just to make a point, I created a simple app and I'm giving it for free. It's daily five. It's on the app store and it's free. And just to show you that even in a market of to-do list app, which is extremely highly populated with hundreds and thousands of apps, you can still make unique things. Still today, you can do that. And I made this app in two days. And I can guarantee you, I mean, you I don't think you can find anything as unique as Daily 5. And it's free just to make a point. So that's one of the things that I always encourage people to do that if you have an idea, even if that idea has been implemented before, go ahead and do it in a different way, in a better way, and uh, create apps that you imagined. Were there any, any existing vegetable apps when you started working on your own app? Absolutely. I, I downloaded pretty much all of them. So I spent maybe $30, $40 just to download all of them for iPhone, of course. Uh, and I and I said, you know what? I can do much better uh, than these apps. Uh, the look and feel were, were just not right. And if you actually see the first version of my app, somehow, if you can pull it out, it was a black and uh, gray and white kind of like off colors. And then after a while, I start updating, I start updating, and it turned into a much nicer green and brown, dark brown, relating to the green vegetables and brown sand or brown dirt or whatever we plant our uh, vegetables. So yes, there were like 50 apps over there. But I think if you now search vegetable gardening on the app store, hopefully, I mean, my, my will come as the first link. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I read a lot of business and marketing books. I, I'm assuming that some of the other guys probably do too as freelancers or working for companies that kind of market their services. But yeah, I, I often see where the suggestion is, is to go into a market where there's, you know, a bit of competition just because you know that people are making money over there. And that makes a lot of sense. You know, people tend to want to be in the markets where people are making money. So, you know, and, and the thing is, is, I mean, how how much money is spent on the iTunes store for to-do list apps? I mean, I can only imagine it's 
quite a large mm-hmm. number. And so, I mean, if you can even get like one or two percent of that, you, you know, you're you're going to make a fair bit of money. You know, so there's a lot of competition, but the reason there's a lot of competition is because there's a lot of demand, and not everybody wants the same uh, way of managing the stuff that they got to get done. So, absolutely, yeah, and that's the real power of the App Store, and that's the real uh, the success of the App Store is due to the fact that uh, there are so many apps that target different niche. Even in the to-do list, there are hundreds of apps, and one person can like one app, and the other person, other ten person, can like the other app because of small features that are available in the other app and not in the first app. So, yeah, yep. And the other thing is, is that a lot of these apps they just put them out in the App Store, and then they kind of count on that to work. Or if they work with some kind of web backend, then they're counting on people signing up on their website and then going and buying the app. And so if you can reach out the way that you did, where you're getting onto the blogs and you're getting people's attention and you're generating a bit of buzz on Twitter, you you can really make inroads on that because, you know, a lot of these other app developers are simply putting it out on the app store and hoping that the version of uh, search engine optimization that you get out of the app store is going to help them make it. Yes, absolutely. So are there any gotchas, though? Are there any ways of getting, like, blacklisted or in trouble on the App Store? Um, I haven't been uh, on that particular blacklist or anything. So when my app actually came out, there were some, uh, well, not this, even the vegetable tree, but some other app, uh, which was Matt Speeder. And I put this open, so and I open source it basically. So it, it was available on GitHub, and some person I don't know who, but they copied it and they just put it. It, it. it was not even a completed app. It was just like a car going on the road, and it doesn't really do anything. And they just uh, put it on the App Store for one dollar. And I think they named even the name was the same as a GitHub GitHub project name. Oh wow! And and it doesn't even work. That's the that's the the worst part. So and someone contacted me that hey, you are the owner of the project, and this Desert Race game is on the App Store under a different name. So I contacted Apple, and it took about like two weeks to get that out. I mean, get that app out from the App Store. Uh, and the same thing happened for Vegetable Tree. Initially, I was putting it on GitHub just for a source control, and someone just took it and then put it on the App Store for to make money. And Apple pulled it out after two weeks uh, or so. So just make sure you're, you're not, even if you're putting it on the GitHub, just make it private, which I don't have private repository. But if you're putting something that you plan to make money off, then it should be private. That's pretty quick turnaround, actually, from from Apple's side. I'm, I'm pretty impressed. It's quicker than they, they might do a review of the app. <laughs> yeah. So what's the process of contacting Apple if someone's kind of infringing on what you've done? There is a, I don't remember the email, but I mean, email address, but there is an email that you have to send to the legal or store notices department. And you have to just explain that this is my app. And uh, this is the one that has been copied by the developer who is named this. And, uh, they will contact the developer and the the developer will either contact you or he will pull the app out. So if he contacts you, you can tell him that, hey, this is, you can use it, but not like this. I mean, you cannot really sell it because of licensing and all that stuff. And then, you know, they will contact. I mean, Apple will be basically involved in all of this and eventually they will, you know, move it out to the, from the app store. So you have your code publicly available. Is there a special license, or is it not licensed at all? 
I don't attach a license to it. I just write it at the end that this code, you should not publish it on the App Store as it is. Even if you do publish it on the App Store as it is, then don't charge because this should be free and you should not be charging for something that is that I put it out for free. You can learn from the code and you can you know, change the graphics and everything, but not the same graphics even. I mean, I don't own the graphics at all and the music. I don't own anything. So you're... Uh, you, you own know. the code. If you write the code, then you mm. own the copyright on the code. And uh, so, I mean, even if you're saying don't use this or only use this under these terms, that's effectively a license. And, uh, you know, people can sort of take it that way. I mean, you can always still tell them to stop at any time because mm. you own the code and you haven't actually granted them any kind of, you know, official license to use it. But, um, you know, basically what you're saying is, is I'm not going to enforce my copyright against you if these are the terms under which you're using it. But yeah, you own the code. I mean, if you put it out public and somebody else takes it, you know, they technically can't use it without your permission. Yeah. Now that makes sense. I was thinking of some other projects I know in the past that have open sourced their code, but they kept kind of copyright over the images, so you mm -hmm. couldn't do that. And if they someone, oh, someone could actually repackage the application and do something with it, you know, they'd do a, a BSD license or something like that. But like the images, the artwork, that's something that you couldn't do, and they kept the ownership of that. So I was, I was just wondering what, what he had done. Isn't that what Firefox did? And that's why Ubuntu had to have like Fireweasel or whatever, because the, technically the images weren't compliant with, weren't an open source image or something. No, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I think I, I gotta say kudos for, for doing that, like for, for putting your, your code out there, because there's no like, you know, some people, there's a, a lot of people would take the attitude of like, I'd rather not, you know, I could do it or I couldn't do it and I'd rather not do it because I don't want people to, to steal my ideas, or I don't want people to poke fun at the way I implemented a certain thing. So, good. I think that's I think that's really cool to 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 put put the stuff out there and and help people learn. You know, like why not? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I yeah, know if I had to publicly post my code, I would pour over every second and rethink everything five times and just <laughs> not get anything done. You know, is this perfect? <laughs> is this perfect? Otherwise, you know. Oh man, there's a lot of cowboy code out there in in some of the other open source communities. JavaScript and Ruby are the ones that I'm most involved in. So you'd be yeah, surprised what gets published. <laughs> the bar is pretty low for uh, the the code that's on GitHub or Stack Overflow or, or yeah. whatever. Okay, so you're just unfortunately saying, not as bad as that guy's code. So there you go. <laughs> Hmm. So by putting it out there, you're actually pushing the, the mean uh, in the right direction. Yeah, I mean, I think recently I made some uh, videos just like a demo of AZ, blind, blind, AZ Blind's animation video, which is like a simple uh, UI kit dynamic uh, stuff, like crazy kind of animation going on, like the menu items falling from the top. And then when you click on the item, it enlarges itself and then moves on the top and becomes a navigation bar. So it kind of like a weird kind of navigation going on, which I mean, animation going on, which I initially I thought that I'm going to use it in my next app, which I'm working on, but it didn't really fit with the, uh, with basically the story of the app or, uh, the feel of the app. So I just put it online, uh, on GitHub. It's called AZ blinds and, uh, you know, people can download it. They can use it in their projects if they want. So one other thing I want to ask about, and you know, it, it basically comes down to the money. You still work a full-time job, and you're publishing these apps on the side. 
Yes. Uh, do you think it'll ever get to the point where you can go to your boss and say, you know what? I'm making enough off the app, app store to where I'm going to quit. Oh, boy. Uh, it will have to make a lot to, for me to quit. So at this point, it's just like a, you know, like nice. I, I mean, it's, I don't know how to put it, but it's, it's, it's okay. Like side thing going on. Uh, but a, there's no way even remotely close of being, uh, doing this full time at this point. But I also think that, I mean, if there are certain apps that I'm working on, if they ever, they, but they have to be extremely gone viral or kind of stuff for me to even start thinking about quitting my work. So, but I just do it on the side. I think that's for right now, that's my main goal. But do you think part of that is kind of uh, like a, a self-reinforcing thing where if you, if you spent more time on it and could, and, and kind of sunk more time into marketing, then or into improving the app, then the sales would increase and you'd kind of get this virtuous cycle? Or do you think it's just fundamentally for it to be a full-time job, you'd need to have a like huge difference in the amount of uh, kind of revenue you're making? Yeah, I think, I mean, the, my main concern is that I, I, of course, need to have a full-time job. And at this point, I mean, in the app store, I haven't really made that much to even consider uh, moving. Uh, if, however, in the future there is a chance of my apps uh, that the one that i'm working on that is that will go big on the app store even then if i'm making a lot just by working like early mornings or on the weekends or late nights i will be very hesitant to uh to quit my full-time job uh, i would be more interested in just uh, selling it out selling the app out for a lot of money and then just starting a new venture because i do get bored really quickly for uh you know, for some of my apps. Hmm. I just think it's interesting because uh, I hear people, this probably won't surprise some people and it might surprise others, but I, I'm approached fairly frequently, at least once a month, sometimes more, by people who have an idea of an app that they want on the app store or a web <laughs> application that they want on the web that is going to take off and it's going to make a millions of dollars uh, and we're going to we're going to pay you in equity and you're going to be a millionaire. Um, yep. and, and they have this idea that they could, you know, they could just make this app and it's just going to take off. And, you know, I, I think it's interesting, you know, to kind of see, okay, well, you know, if you build an app in a week or a month and you put it out there, um, you know, you do some minimal marketing on it. Yeah. You can make, you know, enough to buy a new MacBook Pro, but, you know, it's, it's not going to be enough to actually go and uh, quit your job. Yes, yes. I think the main, for me at least, I never really think of how much I will make eventually. I, I, I mean, of course, I won't lie to you also that, I mean, money is, of course, a really big motivation, but things that are people who have succeeded in the app store or in, in life in general, they didn't really care about the money. They just wanted to do something different and change, basically change the world. And if you, if you have that kind of mentality that if you want to change something, not like I'm changing like few people like doing vegetable gardening. That's, I mean, that's a very small change, uh, like a drop in the ocean. But if you are changing the publishing company, if you are changing how people are storing their pictures or taking pictures and these kind of things that will eventually help all over the world, then you will be, you know, successful in, in life and in, in the app store itself. Mm -hmm. And yes, I mean, those people with, you were mentioning the ideas, uh, I, a couple of, I think weeks ago, that person emailed me saying that he has an idea, but I have to sign an NDA. And I said, there's no way that I'm going to sign an NDA, first of all. And his answer was that the, how will I protect myself? How will I protect my idea? 
And I told him what Marco Arment mentioned in his podcast is that if you think that someone can just listen to your idea and steal it and create the app around it in a week or two or a month, then that idea was not really good to begin with. Right, because the barrier to competition is so low. Yeah. So the other thing that I'm curious about is when you submit the application, you said that you're kind of within a niche, within a niche, so your you know, lifestyle and then you know, whatever it is underneath that that kind of encompasses the gardening and things. How do you pick that? And is there a good way to do that and be at least somewhat certain that you're going to wind up close to the top or anything? Yeah. So initially when I uh, launched the app in November 2012, I picked the reference category, which is like a main category, uh, one of the like main categories, because it's a reference app. And in March I was uh, a March and April time frame. I was just checking out the stats on appany.com and I noticed that the app is featured, but it's not featured inside the reference category, but it's featured inside the lifestyle category. So just by doing this kind of uh, experimentation, I change it to lifestyle category and lifestyle. If even if you go right now in the lifestyle category, you will find the subcategories like birthday cards or uh, wedding anniversaries or something like that. And those are the categories, the subcategories that Apple will develop. There, there's no way to pick those categories, but Apple will, depending on the mood, depending on the time frame and the season, Apple will create those categories themselves. Like I think in like if you're in lifestyle, you and in you're near near Christmas, you might see Christmas card categories, and you'll see all the application regarding Christmas card under that category. So in the March April time frame, Apple created a category called Let Your Garden Grow, and my app was among maybe eight or ten apps over there. I think five of them were like magazines, uh, gardening magazine, and uh, rest over the apps. So it was featured in that particular section. But there's no way to select that because that's on the fly that mm-hmm. Apple decides. Yeah. Okay. So how much work is involved in overtaking like existing applications? You talked about Vegetable Tree and how there are existing apps out there. I've talked to other developers that have made games, or not games, but applications, and there's a lot of inertia. So if someone's an, an existing kind of the leader in a, in a space, it's really hard to catch up. Did you have any, any trouble with that? Not really. I mean, I, I downloaded pretty much, as, as I recall, I mean, I, as I said, I pretty much all the apps that were related to vegetable gardening. And I looked at them. I, I checked out the reviews. I always go and check out the reviews of the other apps and what they are missing. At the same time, the feature set that I wanted to control inside the vegetable tree was very small. I didn't want to create a vegetable tree app that can do a to-do list or that can do, uh, that can do this and that can do that. And sometimes when you are choosing this feature set, you have to make really big decisions. So one of the big decisions that I made is that I will provide you the catalog and you cannot add anything inside that catalog. As a user, you cannot add a new vegetable. I will provide you the vegetable. And I know, I mean, you might, I mean, all of you might be wondering, like, what the hell? I mean, this, this kind of doesn't make any sense. It's my app. I paid for it. I can, if I have a tomato, I can, uh, I should be able to just add a new Vegetable as a tomato. Yeah, you jerk. Where's yeah. my Japanese eggplant? <laughs> so the reason behind this, and I, and I have of course, thought about it for a long time. The reason behind this is that if I allow the customers to add their own vegetables, it will uh, jeopardize the look and feel of the app. Even if they are adding the vegetable in their own local database and the other users will never see, 
but their friends will see, their family members will see. So in order for you to add a vegetable, you have to use a contact link and you have to email me the name of the vegetable that you want to add. And I have at least like 50 emails from people who wanted to add vegetables. And during the course of 2012, 2013, the vegetable list has now grown from 30 vegetables to 70 vegetables. And one of the other things is that all the images in the vegetables are paid images. These are images are not taken by me. I paid for every single image and every single image, or at least I would say 90% of the images have a certain angle to it that will, you know, it's, they're not like a 2D kind of images. I won't say they're a 3D, but there's a, like a 9%, 9 degree angle or 10 degree angle going on that, that makes them more appealing. And of course, if I allow you as a, user to add those things, you might just, you know, just uh, take a bad picture and add it into your catalog. So uh, it eventually turned out to be pretty good because people keep uh, emailing me that, hey, where is uh, arugula? Where is basil? Can you add sweet basil? And this was kind of like a communication and uh, a customer service. And uh, I mean, I provided excellent customer service. And if you read all the reviews, it's mostly because I responded to them in a day or two and I added those vegetables and uh, I got good reviews by doing that. How do you get the images? They are on the, uh, I mean, I buy the images from different websites like Pond5 website and I buy them, buy them like it's like two, three dollars a piece. Some of them are like a dollar a piece and I buy them. And then, of course, I store everything on my web server. And uh, whenever there are some new vegetables and uh, the app launches, it downloads only the new vegetables to your local database. Very nice. Do you have any other recommendations? Let's say somebody is getting ready to launch their first app. What What are some of the things that they're going to run into um, getting into the app store that uh, they should be aware of? I think when and most of the people I know are uh, C-sharp developers, the first thing that they need to do is to use the uh, or create the app as it's supposed to be. So if you're creating an iOS app, make sure that you create a native code. Don't go with Monotouch or Xamarin. And I know, I mean, those tools are really great and created by some really, uh, you know, great people. But sometimes it just, it makes more sense to go with the native. And also you can go, I mean, you will find more resources regarding native. And the dependency that you will be creating if you're using like something like Ruby Motion or Xamarin or HTML5, if you want to do that, it's just uh, not really, you know, it, it will not really feel that well. And what if Apple decides tomorrow that, hey, you know what? Everything has to be native. No more of this stuff. So what, what are you going to do? So th- that's the first thing that I would I would recommend everyone that if you're making an Android app, do it in Java. If you're making an iOS app, do it in uh, Objective-C Xcode native. So that's the first thing that I, I would recommend everyone doing that. Second thing is, of course, people are, for some reason, they are, uh, they're having some hard time coming up with the ideas. And ideas usually come to you when do, when you are not really thinking about them. And unfortunately, I mean, it's not like technical related, but if it's not like a technical argument or something, but most of the ideas will come to you when you are actually not thinking about the ideas, when you are just wandering around just go to gym or swimming or something and you will get those ideas. So make sure that, you know, when you're starting out, 
make sure that if you have an idea, it resembles to something that you have done in, in your memory or in your culture and that you can code it. And that will be much more fun. Like Mathematician app was basically inspired by my visit to a basically a poultry farm back in my country. And that idea came to me that way. And of course, make a deadline. If you don't have a deadline, there's there's no way that you're going to finish the app. Even if you do a 30-minute or one-hour work on your app, make a deadline, uh, try to accomplish a smaller task, and uh, achieve those things. So these are kind of like a basic guidelines I pretty much tell everyone to uh, to take if they want to get started with iOS development. So would you advocate for people kind of saying, you know what, whatever I've got after this, at the end of this month, I'm, I'm going to release it and then I'll, I'll improve it once I've released it. Or do you think, do you think it's important to, I guess, I, I, I imagine there's a class of people who would just keep on polishing and polishing and polishing the app because they, they want it to be perfect before they release it to the app store. And I kind of feel like for those people, they need some way, there needs to be some forcing function mm. to just get something out there and, and get feedback on whether it's working or not. Yeah, I mean, if your app is about, let's say, taking pictures, if you're making something, uh, with the, doing with the, something with the camera, so the only feature that you have to be concerned about is that you, you can take a picture and maybe you can crop it or something. But the main idea, the main essence of your app should be that you can take a picture. All the other things you can add later on, but it has to be, you have to build in the first release has to provide the basic essence of the app itself. If you are releasing, just like like a picture app to take a picture, but you are saying that, okay, pick a picture from a library instead of taking a picture, but that, that won't really make sense. So just make sure that you provide small feature set, but feature set has to be extremely polished out. So if you have 20 features that you want to incorporate in your first release, make sure that maybe you do the basic features are the most important that the user will feel, uh, like five or maybe four features, you can do that. If you keep polishing your app forever that you're going to add all those 20, 30 features and then you're going to release the app, then we're talking about basically releasing Duke Nukem, which was released 15 years after the first version was released in 1996. And then the second version of Duke Nukem Forever was released 15 years later, and it didn't really go that well. So make sure that you're not creating Duke Nukem Forever. That's my advice, yeah. <laughs> Duke Nukem, I love it. <laughs> That's a really awesome tip for me is is focus on one thing and nail it and get it done rather than trying to get everything done, and you'll end up kind of being the jack of all trades and the master of none. So like focus on one thing and get it done and, and done and put it out there and then you can add your next thing and put that out there rather than trying to solve the whole world at once. I've been reading the Lean Startup and you know some of this is, is kind of close to the idea of a minimum viable product. You know, So you put something out there that works or kind of works and then you start getting the feedback. So then you start figuring out what you really need to build that people want. And you know, I, I think there's definitely a lot to be said for you know, just getting something out there and, and letting people see it. But obviously you don't want to put something out there that's totally busted either. Yeah. yeah I think the Apple ecosystem kind of yeah, kind makes it, it harder to do that because if you don't have a polished app, you're going to get trashed. So even if you're trying to validate something like in the lean startup method, you know, if you're missing things. Uh, I don't know if I agree with that. Like I've put out some pretty bad stuff. <laughs> <laughs> people love like, it. 
I, I mean, I mean, seriously, the the one thing that I've put out onto an app store that had any kind of success was this, frankly, half finished Facebook thing that was, but the functionality was there. It was for downloading photos from your Facebook album, and I didn't really have the patience to actually make it look good or or feel at all polished. Um, but I put it out there, and because the idea was useful to people, downloaded it. Well, it was useful and it worked, right? You could use it. Yeah, the, the, yeah, you could use it in a very raw sense. I mean, it was like really, it was pretty embarrassingly bad. Like when you tried to open up an image in like the full screen view, like half of the last image was there for half a second and then it like refreshed. Like it was, it was buggy, but the, the raw functionality was there. You could view things full screen. You could download them and, and it still gets loads of downloads. So I think it's, it's as, as much psychologically hard to do that as it is kind of a, um, a, a property of the, the ecosystem. Mm-hmm. That's so, good. If you scratch the right itch, then I guess you're okay. I've heard, I've heard the opposite is true, but that's awesome. That's right. You scratch the right itch. You charge a thousand dollars for your app, right? Well, if, I think also part of it is that this was on the Mac App Store, so the the oh. bar is low. Like I think maybe if I was doing this on iOS, because you you just have so much more competition, right? So maybe that's part of it too. Could be. So speaking of thousand dollar apps, what should you price your app at? So pricing is a difficult beast to handle. Uh, I priced it, and it was an experiment. I think it pricing is will always be an experiment for many different apps, or basically all the apps. So, so initially, when I launched the app, I priced it at one ninety nine, as most of the vegetable gardening apps were priced at that point. And I was making some decent sales in the summer months and spring uh, time frame. And after maybe. Uh, Maybe three weeks or four weeks a month time, I change it to two ninety nine. Sales didn't really drop. Same sales going on, and I raised it to three ninety nine. Still, same sales going on. Didn't really drop uh, at all. Uh, I change it to then four ninety nine, which is five dollars, and then I could see the sales a little bit staggering, a little bit dropping at that point. So I reverted back to uh, three ninety nine, and that is the price. So pricing will always be an experiment or a going on experiment for most of the apps. I choose a very simple formula uh, for my pricing. If the app is for a niche market, then I price it higher. If the market is big, then you price lower. Just like the market for, let's say, Angry Birds is a two-year-old and also a 70, 80-year-old grandmother. And everyone in between, they're playing Angry Birds. But a pricing for a vegetable gardening app or a, a an app to keep track of your motor vehicle, that is for particular niche, people who like gardening, people who are you know, are interested in maintaining their vehicle and get notification and all that. So you can price that at a much higher rate because you, uh, you know, because the niche or the audience is so low. The same way if you're building an app for doctors and it's going to save lives or it's going to help saving lives, you can price it at nine ninety nine, and still I, I'm, I'm sure that doctors and, uh, you know, those uh, medical institutions, they will be interested in buying those. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I think there are still a few small niches where you can charge really high. I think there are some some apps for for law that are five hundred bucks, and they apparently manage to sell enough of them to make money. So, yeah, yeah, two other apps are hundreds to maybe even a thousand. I was going to make the joke about uh, well, lawyers are rich, so they'll just pay it right. But (laughs) yeah, but, but it has to have that value behind it, right? 
Absolutely, yeah. So the other thing that, that's really interesting about uh, marketing your app is we get into things like the screenshots and the, the icon, the app icon, and things like that, that kind of, you know, when you're in the app store, a lot of people don't really read the description. They just look at the pictures and go, oh, that okay, that's what this does, or, you know, I don't really like the way it looks or whatever. So, so how do you go about uh, putting those things together, the icon and the screenshots? So screenshots, of course, I take the screenshot my, myself uh, for the app store itself. Um, for the for the website or for display, there's a place place it place it website where you can just drag your image, and it will uh, put it on different screens, including Windows and Android and uh, iOS screens. And uh, now I think they're charging, but most of them are actually free. So they take like it makes it more appealing but on the app store i just take the screenshot from the simulator or from my device and just upload it over there uh it's also a good idea to crop out the top navigate well not the navigation bar but the status bar on the screenshots that you put it on the app store i haven't done that but it's a there are some tools that you can use to do that but icon is the the most important thing uh it's basically a pathway to your app that you must keep it clean and beautiful or else no one will even click on the you know on the app and buy it i'm not an icon designer or a designer of any sort so this is one of the things that i have to outsource it so there are different website i found dribble.com very nice website where you can also search by keyword like vegetable or tomato or something and you can get all the all the authors that have done that kind of work and i contacted those authors uh and i for vegetable gardening Icon, I paid $200 for that. And the good thing about the the great icon is that if the icon is great, well, people aren't going to download, people are going to download because of the icon, but also the icon itself will get featured on different websites. And the vegetable tree icon was featured on many different websites as one of the most, uh, you know, beautiful icons, uh, basically. Not, I would, I won't say on the app store, but one of the, you know, beautiful apps are available on the app store. So icons, if you have a budget of $200 for the whole app, I would spend all of it on the icon. Hmm. And I did. That's interesting. Well, and I guess the icon, if you're doing a search in iTunes, it shows you the icon in the list and then just the name and, you know, one line of the description if you're lucky. So that really is kind of an attention grabber more than anything else, just in the marketing overall. Yes. Anything else that's important to uh, consider when going into the App Store? I would say just make sure that you uh, take care of all the legal stuff, all the images, all the things. If you're making games, then, of course, game will have artwork. It will have soundtrack, uh, sound effects, and other characters, animation, and all that. So make sure that you, you know, uh, you never know that when your app is going to be hit, like... uh, as it becomes like a top app or something. So make sure that you purchase all of those things, protect your assets, form an LLC if you can in Texas or even, I mean, in the United States, we can easily form an LLC by uh, different websites. Uh, For your app itself, getting ratings is very, very important. Someone actually mentioned that the, the ranking of the app store is dependent on the ratings that you get. So do provide excellent uh, customer service and uh, just treat your customers with with respect. And with iOS 7 already, well, it's been a while that iOS 7 has been released, but if you you are 
planning to target an app for a small niche market where you see that they're still running iOS 6, 6 and 5 and all those previous versions, then that's a very good uh, indication that you can go and conquer that market much more quickly if you build an iOS 7 version because now 80% of the people are running iOS 7 and they prefer iOS 7 apps to be seen. If you present them with iOS 6 apps or anything less, then it will look obsolete and old. So make sure you, you know, if you're targeting that niche, make sure you make iOS 7 apps. Cool. One other thing I want to ask, and that is, you've mentioned uh, Android a couple of times. Have you built any apps or rewritten your apps for Android? Currently, I have not, but I do have plans. Uh, I just, I'm just too busy in, in working on my other ideas uh, for iOS app. The, the one that I'm working on is quite huge app, and uh, finding time just to do that app is also like pretty much getting impossible with the family and a, and a regular job. But uh, after I'm done with that, which might take the whole whole year or something. But uh, after I'm done with that, I sure do want to convert my apps uh, to Android market. Uh, Android market, as I see it, is people are not really buying the apps itself. I think they're making more money than uh, using the advertisements that are being displayed. I don't really want to display advertisement because it kind of kills the quality of the app. But I think that's one of the only ways to make money in that particular market. All right. Well, take all of this advice. Go get rich on the App Store, and uh, we'll get into the picks. Andrew, do you want to start us off with picks? Sure. Uh, my picks are both non-technical today, which is a change from usual. But I'm in L.A., so I thought I'd pick a couple places in L.A. that I really like. The first one is called Galco Soda Pop Stop. This is just a... It's actually a little grocery store, I think, that opened in the late 1800s, but um, at some point they converted over to selling just soda pop, and it's a lot of like local small small batch uh, sodas, and they're, um, they've got a lot of interesting and, and good stuff, and some stuff that you just look at and think, why would anyone drink that, like buffalo wing soda and pickle soda and that kind of <laughs> gross thing, things, but... <laughs> And then the other one is uh, Amoeba Records, which is kind of a Hollywood landmark. And that's, um, it, it actually started up in Berkeley and there's a location in San Francisco, but the, the Hollywood location is the biggest and it's a huge, um, independent record store that is also, um, it, it used to be a supermarket. So that gives you an idea of how big it is. And there's everything you can imagine, whole section of jazz and all kinds of electronic music and rock. And anyway, I can spend hours there. So those are my picks. Cool. Jane, what are your picks? Okay, so I upgraded my MacBook Pro about a month ago. Can you hear the SSD sound from my voice? Does it sound a lot better? Beautiful. Okay. But my, my boot camp, my old boot camp kind of partition just died. So I had to reinstall Windows for when I had to do Windowsy type things. And I remembered one of the tools that I use that is awesome because I did a lot of Emacs development early on in my career. So I've got those key bindings kind of dashed into my into my fingers. But use Windows, you don't really get you know, your Control-A, your Control-E, all that stuff that you're kind of used to if you're doing Mac stuff. But there is one tool I remember that I used way back when Visual Studio stopped really supporting Emacs bindings. It's called XKeyMax, which has been around for a long time, and it works with Windows 7, hopefully still Windows 8. I haven't installed Windows 8. I don't think anyone does on purpose, so I wouldn't worry about that too much. <laughs> 
But X Keymacs. So if you want your uh, Emacs bindings when you're doing your Gmail in Chrome or whatever, you can use it. So it's a nice, nice tool. Awesome. Pete, what are your picks? Uh, my first pick is Amoeba Records in San Francisco because it's way better <laughs> than the one in LA. I've never been to the one in LA, but it's uh, smaller. I, but I, the one in San Francisco is very, very nice. The one in San Francisco is funny because it's like it's in the hate it's in uh Hate Ashbury, which is kind of like the old like sixties hippie region. So you can go and look at a huge selection of CDs and then walk outside and see tourists and uh street kids trying to sell you stuff that is probably really bad quality. So Amoeba Records in San Francisco is awesome. I'm sure the one in LA is also also awesome. My second pick is uh, a kind of a meta pick. It is a pick of picks. The Fortworks technology radar came out today. So this is like our opinionated opinion on what's good and bad in software right now, in software development, I guess. And uh, so I was kind of looking for it. There's a bunch of stuff in here around iOS. So using Travis for iOS uh, continuous integration, Xamarin, Calabash, prototype on paper, which I think we talked about um, quite a few episodes ago, um, continuous delivery for mobile, phone gap, Mobile backend as a service, the list goes on. So, um, yeah, if you're interested in in what we think about software, then um, you should take a look at that. And then my last pick, uh, I think I might be picking it bef- preempting Chuck picking the same thing. But the the Lean Startup book is actually pretty good for this all this kind of like building a product type stuff. I kind of hate the fact that it means that everyone says MVP when actually they don't mean MVP. But um, <laughs> That's so true. <laughs> that phrase has officially fully jumped the shark and does not actually mean anything anymore. But it's still there's loads of really good stuff, really good advice in there in terms of just um, how to learn about what your market is and blah, blah, blah. So those are my three picks. So uh, I'm a nice person and I let you guys pick first. Of course, I always make the guest pick last, so maybe I'm not so nice. Anyway, I've got a couple of picks here. I was going to pick the Lean Startup book. Um, I'm going to pick Audible. I've picked it before, but that's how I consumed it the first time. I actually have a hard copy here, and I'm planning on reading through it because I I think I just need that visual, you know, burned into my brain kind of uh, version of it. But I totally just love the ideas in that book and uh, can't say enough nice things about it. I've also uh, started advising my clients to start doing some of the Lean Startup stuff, and that works out for me on various levels. Doing web development, a lot of times you can cobble something together from existing services. And so uh, I've actually talked people out of hiring me <laughs> because of it. Because it's like, look, your MVP is use these three things and then we'll cobble together a website. And, uh, you know, you won't spend a ton of money, but then you can figure out what people want. So anyway, I, I just, I love it. I love the Lean Startup book. The other pick that I have, I've been trying to get my website together for my consultancy and I've been hiring subcontractors and finding a ton of work, and I, I just really want to be able to have something out there that represents well. And I don't really have time to build it out in Rails, and for the most part, Rails is overkill because most of it's just informational anyway. And I do want to blog on it, but that's about it as far as anything complicated. And so uh, I ran across a system called Jekyll, and I've known about Jekyll for for years, but I just I had never really uh, played with it. But I'm using Jekyll to build my uh, website out, for my consultancy, and I'm I'm really loving it. The nice thing is, is I can just build out the layout, and then I just uh, throw together some HTML, and I'm done. And uh, so, you know, kind of a nice payoff there. I don't have to go in and actually uh, code out too much stuff. 
And then I just use third-party services for anything that I need, like people signing up for my courses or workshops. Anyway, I should have that up pretty soon, and I'll let you know where to go once I have it together, but uh, I am going to pick Jekyll. And that's all I've got. Azam, what are your picks? Yes, I have one pick. It's the Pebble Watch, uh, which was generously donated by Pebble. Uh, so I can make some screencasts on it and put it on my channel, uh, like Pebble Development Screencast. Uh, really like the watch. I never had a watch before. This might be the first watch that I have been wearing to my work and uh, during off hours. You can easily transfer all the watch faces and apps from your Pebble, uh, the iPhone app, to the Pebble device. The seven-minute workout is also available on the on the, on the Pebble watch, and it is uh, waterproof. Although I have not really used it while swimming, but uh, I might give it a try uh, someday. So that's my pick of for this. Awesome. All right, well, um, and I'm jealous, too, because I want a Pebble Watch. Anyway, um, so uh, thanks for coming. I really appreciate it, and I think we all learned a lot about uh, how to get our apps out there and get people to use them. Yeah, thanks for having me on the show. It was uh, really fun. All right. yeah, it was really interesting. Well, we'll wrap this up. We'll catch you all next week, and uh, thanks for listening.